Um, yeah, we're going to look at the Bible now before Jez comes and speaks to us. So we're looking at Daniel chapter 2, from verse 17. Um, so if you've got a Bible, you can open up there. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we've asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Well, good afternoon. and Look, welcome to anyone who's just started tuning in. I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders. And uh, great to be speaking to you from the book of Daniel this afternoon. And really, I think as Gav mentioned just before in the interview... This is an incredibly fitting book for us to be walking through at this moment because it's been a real season of of change for us as a small church, but really the book of Daniel is written to encourage God's people in very uncertain circumstances that God is on the throne and working his purposes out. It's a book written to God's people who were in exile, meaning they'd been taken from their homeland by a foreign power, had their nation destroyed been ruined in war, and then taken entirely away from their home context to another world, basically, in Babylon, to now live out in a culture that was hostile to their worldview and their religion, and a culture that was dominating the world and had destroyed their past. And it's written to a people who are discouraged and displaced and meant to give them courage, to give strength to women and men to stand up and to follow their God, knowing that he is sovereignly working his purposes out. And so I think it's fitting that we'd be diving into this book uh, in, in the kind of year that we'd had in a pandemic and with so much change to know that God is still on the throne. And if Daniel 2 were to say one thing to us as a church community today, it's this, that God alone is the source of true wisdom. God alone is the source of true wisdom. Right in the center of this passage, Daniel is going to cry out this to God. He says, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise because you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. The central message of this passage is that wisdom comes from God. And this matters because it's a challenge for anyone here today who wants to follow Jesus in Sydney in 2020. The main reason is that we live in a culture where we are constantly consuming a worldview that is antithetical to the gospel. Imagine if you could see up on the screen here a tally, just two columns. And in the column on the right, what you have is the entire amount of Netflix and social media that this small church community has consumed in the last week. And in the other column are the number of hours spent in spiritual formation. I imagine you anticipate, like I do, that there'd be a stacking of the columns in one particular direction. And of course, the thing you might say back to that is, well, yeah, like, 
Imagine if you laid out the amount of time we kind of spent eating meals or at work compared to how much time, you know, in spiritual formation, however you want to define that. But the truth is there is something different about it. Because things like movies and TV and social media, unlike having a meal or even work necessarily, they carry within them worldview. They carry within them worldview, assumptions, presuppositions about how the world works and what it means to live well in this world, what you would call wisdom. But the strange thing about our times is that many of us are forming deep beliefs mostly through our habits rather than conscious efforts. Think of it in this way. In her book, in Donna Friedis' book, The Happiness Effect, she talks about the impact that social media is having in forming deep beliefs in people that they don't even realize that they have. And she recounts the story of a college student who, who told her the little anecdote of, of actually just sitting by his window one time in his dorm, and he was looking out, watching the snow fall. And he found himself just engrossed in watching sort of snowflakes fall past the window pane. But as he did that, he started to have this sense of almost this, this clouding over of, of thoughts lifting up from his subconscious and coming over him, and started to feel uneasy and unsettled. And his instinct was straight away to get out his phone and start flicking through things, and instantly he felt better. And in that moment, he realized that he'd formed the deeply held belief that I need to feel good all the time. And any time I feel funny or off, I need to do something to get that away from me. And she makes the comment that because of this, we are seeing a generation who are forming deep views that aren't actually for our flourishing or our good, they aren't wisdom, but they're having a huge impact on our lives. Well, the book of Daniel would say this is life in exile. This is life in a foreign culture. We've consumed so much teaching unthinkingly. Previously, you had to enter a temple or cross a threshold to go and hear teaching from another worldview. But now, you're drinking it in day after day. It is the unconscious default. And some of you may even be sitting here thinking you're having a crisis of faith when, in, in fact, really it is it's just a game of math. The amount of time you spend drinking in a worldview that you at least say you don't believe is causing friction. Well, here we're going to see in this passage that the way to live as the people of God in a foreign culture is to trust that God alone is the source of, of true wisdom, that he alone is the one who gives wisdom and knowledge and understanding, and true wisdom and understanding is to be found in him. And so as we dive into Daniel 2 this morning, here's where we're going to go. We're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, is going to have his worldview come up well short. His worldview fails to give him wisdom. We're going to see, him, we're going to see Daniel turn to God for wisdom. And then we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar finally admit that wisdom really comes from God, the God of Israel. And then we're going to hear the call ourselves to turn to God to hear wisdom. And so I'm going to pray that as we dive into this story, this ancient story, that God would be speaking directly into our modern lives. I'm going to pray for that now. Father, we pray that this afternoon we would sit still, we would calm our anxious thoughts, our rushing minds, and that we would sit before you and hear what you have to say to us through your word. May your spirit work within us to teach us what you would have us understand, that we might see that true wisdom comes from you, and that we might find the peace and the joy that comes with being your people, loved by an everlasting God. 
Amen. Well, the story starts in the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar. And at this point, his, his kingdom is the biggest kingdom in the world. To give you some perspective on it, I'll bring up a map here. And right in the middle of the map is the new Babylonian Empire. And at that time, he was the world power, the biggest deal in the ancient Near East. He'd expanded all of their borders. He'd subdued practically all of their enemies. He was living in a time of absolute prosperity. They had destroyed Israel, and as a way of getting bragging rights over the, the nation that they'd conquered, he'd taken the precious items out of the Jewish temple and placed them in the temple of Marduk, one of the Babylonian gods as a way of demonstrating the supremacy of their gods over this so-called God of Israel. Even Nebuchadnezzar's name was a demonstration of their God's supremacy. He was named after Nabu. This was to show that everything was going his way and that the God of Israel had lost control completely and was no God at all. But the book of Daniel is written to encourage God's people in this time to say to them, God is on the throne. He hasn't been wrong-footed here. He knows what's going on. And things start to get shaky right from the start of Daniel 2. Look at what happens. In Daniel 2, 1-6, we read this. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell him his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation... You shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Just think of this. The king has dreams and they massively disturb him. And by dreams, it means it's probably a recurring dream. But he has completely lost control of his life. He is losing it. He can't sleep at night. He's freaking out. He gets all of the astrologers and wise people, all the most knowledgeable people in his staff together because he is panicking. Think how crazy this is. My kids, who are eight, seven, and five, their most common complaint when they wake up in the middle of the night is that they had a nightmare. Nebuchadnezzar was every bit as vulnerable to dreams as my children. Kings may seem important, and yet they come unstuck easily, don't they? And God knew this. God knew this is what would rock him. He lived in a superstitious culture. He believed that dreams were the ways that gods communicated to, the, to their people. And so God gives him a dream and it rocks him. He shatters him. If it had been you know, a military threat, he wouldn't have lost sleep. He was a great military strategist. We know that from history. If it had been you know, something to do with a famine or factions or infighting, he was a great administrator. He would have had that covered. He wouldn't have lost any sleep over it. But this dream tears him apart. He's losing his mind. And so he calls everyone together, the most knowledgeable and powerful people, this emergency cabinet that he draws together, and he says to them, I had a dream and I want to know what it is. And he says to them, you're going to tell me the dream and its interpretation. And they respond by saying this, in Daniel 2.11, these wise people say to him, the thing that the king asks is difficult 
That's an, that's an understatement, by the way. The thing that king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. They say to him, what you're asking is impossible. The only people or beings who could possibly know this information are the gods, and we don't have access to them. Nebuchadnezzar realizes at this point that no one can help him. He set them this test because he suspected that they really didn't have any deep knowledge. And so he says to them, if you guys are you know, magicians and enchanters, well then you tell me the dream, and none of them are able to do it. They come up entirely short. Nebuchadnezzar realizes that in a crisis, none of these people can help him. Isn't that the case, that often a crisis will demonstrate whether or not your worldview is up to the task? A few years ago, in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, Amy Malloy wrote an article called Young People Need to Talk About Death. And she talked about the experience of marrying young and her husband dying soon after, in her early 20s. And her friends were not able to help. She said this, After my husband died three weeks after our wedding day, even my closest friends evaporated or became stiff in my company. In the next few months, as I rebelled against my grief, drinking too much, becoming promiscuous, no one dared challenge me or raise the topics that I ached to discuss. Things got hard. She needed to talk about something significant like death, and her friends just disappeared. Their worldview was built for good times, but not for a crisis. And in that moment, she felt like she had no one. Nebuchadnezzar is in crisis. He doesn't know what to do. He is panicking, and he turns to his nearest advisors, and suddenly it's like he realizes, oh my gosh, these guys don't know anything. They can't help me. And so he reacts calmly and sentences them all to death and says, I'm going to destroy all your houses as well. He is absolutely out of control. And at this point, Daniel enters the story, and look what happens. In Daniel 2, 14 and 15, it says, He declared to Arioch, this is Daniel talking to Arioch, the captain who is sent to kill all of these advisors. He says, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show him the interpretation to the king. Just think how bold this is. He, he's, he speaks to this captain. The captain says, this is what's happening. Nebuchadnezzar's had a dream. No one knows what it is and can't interpret it. He's going to kill everyone. And so Daniel says, make a time with the king, and I'm going to tell it to him. Now, at this point, he has no idea what the dream is or what its interpretation is. I guess at this point he hasn't got a lot to lose anyway because he's going to die one way or another. So he's just like, it's a Hail Mary. He's just going to throw it out there. But there is a confidence to Daniel here. He says, make an appointment with the king and I'm going to tell him what's up. And then look what happens. In 2, 17 to 19, it says, Then Daniel went to his house and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So his close mates who've come with him from Israel. He says to them, Seek the mercy of God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions may not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So he gets his friends together and he says, look, I know I'm a confidence player. I've made a really big call on this one. I need you guys to pray up. Go and ask God that he would reveal to me what this dream is. And God hears them and he answers them and has mercy on them. And Daniel understands what the vision is. And then look what he says. He prays to God. He says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. He says God is in control. God is the source of true wisdom. And he just praises God for giving him the understanding to save him and his friends. God gives him the understanding of what the dream is and its interpretation. And he says, God, you alone have power. You know what? These, these kingdoms that seem so powerful, they're just a game of chess to you. You set up kings and you remove them. They are nothing to you. As important as they seem to themselves or to everyone around, in the end, they're just one after the other. I mean, who of us this week, other than looking at this book, was talking to our friends about Nebuchadnezzar, who at one time determined the fates of, what, hundreds of thousands of people, and now forgotten? And this is true regardless. See, here Daniel says, wisdom and knowledge come from God. Even if you are an intelligent and successful person, just think of how little credit you can take for that. You weren't born, you didn't choose the intellectual capacity that you were going to be born with. You didn't choose the economic or educational circumstances that you'd be born into or the family that you would be born to. So even if you are smart and accomplished, you can only take at best small credit for it. God has written into his creation little clues everywhere to remind us that knowledge and wisdom are beyond us and outside us. We are small and finite. And Daniel says, really, wisdom comes from you, God. And so then he goes to sort this out. And like a scene from a movie, like it's an execution where the governor's phone goes off, the red phone or whatever goes off, you know, five seconds before someone's going to pull the lever. I don't know. That's obviously a mash of all different things. That doesn't quite work out as one story. But um, with, with seconds to go, he says, wait, stop. He calls out to Arioch. He goes and meets with the king and he tells him the dream. And in this, we read in Daniel 27 and 28, Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that he has asked. But there is a God who is in heaven, who reveals mysteries, and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And then he goes on to explain the dream. And he says to him, This dream is actually a dream where God is telling you what's going to happen in the future. And the dream is this, there is a great image or statue, and this is someone's best sort of rendering of, of what it would, would possibly be, but the dream goes like this, there's a statue, it's huge, it has a gold head, it has a silver chest, a bronze waist, iron legs, and then iron mixed with clay for feet. Then a rock comes out of nowhere, as often happens in dreams, not great with coherent narrative, but just a rock comes out of nowhere, hits the feet of the statue destroys it then the rock turns into a mountain and then that mountain covers the whole earth and then daniel says this means something this image or this statue is to represent the three empires that will come after you he says the head the gold head that's the babylonian empire but after you will come three empires now it's not labeled in daniel what they were and people have gone back and forth it does fit pretty neatly that there were three world empires after that it was the Persians and Medes, into the Greeks, into the Romans. But he does say during that third empire, the kingdom of God will begin and it will cover the earth. And it's during the Roman Empire that Jesus arrives, preaches the gospel, and the reason we are talking about it here today is because it has gone across the globe. But basically the message to Nebuchadnezzar is, you're not that big a deal. You're here for a good time, not a long time. 
The Babylonian Empire seems impressive now, but you'll be superseded by another empire, which will be superseded by another, and so on and so on throughout history. He says, God has revealed this to you. And the king is floored by it. He's humbled, completely humbled. Look how he responds. In Daniel 2, 47 to 49, it says, The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings. You're always expecting Lord of lords or King of kings. He's gone for Lord of kings. Anyway, it's not a typo. And a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. Nebuchadnezzar admits that neither Nabu nor Marduk could bring him the wisdom that he needed, but the God of Israel did. Daniel's God. And Daniel, because he trusted in God, saves not only his own life, but the lives of those around him. As he trusts that God is the source of true wisdom, he brings salvation not just to himself, but to those around him. God blesses those around him. And the message of Daniel 2 is not really that we are Daniel, because often we're not. Often we're the ones more like Nebuchadnezzar who need to be reminded or even humbled that we are not as big as we think we are. No, Daniel is a type of one to come. He's a type of Jesus. Jesus, the one who did not live for what people said, but trusted in God's wisdom alone, who said while he walked on earth, I do only what I see my father doing. And instead of listening to what others wanted him to do, listen to what his heavenly father wanted him to do. So that when his friends said to him, Jesus, your profile is blowing up huge. Go to Jerusalem. You know, go massive. Send this skyrocketing. Instead, Jesus says, my father says my hour is not yet. I'm not going. And then later on, when he's going to Jerusalem, they say, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to be killed. And he says, but my hour has come. I know that from my heavenly father. And because Jesus trusted that wisdom comes from God and he followed the will of his heavenly father, he saved all of us around him. Jesus is the true and greater Daniel. And so what does this mean for us? Well, praise God for his grace to us in Jesus. That we get to benefit from Jesus' faithfulness. Just like Daniel's friends benefited from his trust in God. So we have benefited as Jesus' brothers now adopted in. But also, doesn't it make you want to be like your brother and king, Christ? To be one who trusts that God alone is the true source of wisdom? Who clears out time to hear not from the world around us what is wise, but to hear from the everlasting God what is truly wise? If I was to put Satan's schemes for the church down to one tactic at the moment, I would say it's signal jamming. If you don't know what signal jamming is, back when people used to use radios to communicate, particularly in a war situation, they would transmit messages along a certain frequency. And if you could work out what frequency or frequencies the enemy was using, and you could transmit noise on those frequencies. You could put anything on there, white noise, just anything that's going to... You could put on a, a crappy old record, whatever you wanted. If you, if you just jam that signal with noise, then the important messages that needed to get through on that frequency would not get, would not get through. At the moment, we are getting so much information constantly that it is hard to sit still and to hear the voice of God clearly. 
Even a few weeks ago, we put out a challenge to the church to sit down for one hour with the Word of God and just to reflect on His Word and to pray. And I don't know how you found that time, but the first part of it was to sit still for just two minutes and clear every thought out of your head except the fact that God is my Father and He is with me. And it was so hard to do. Two minutes felt like forever because there are constantly thoughts and things rushing into my mind. We're used to just stimulating our minds constantly. It is so hard to just sit still and to hear from our Creator God. The signal is jammed. If we are to be like Jesus in that way, to be like Daniel, to develop an instinct where we would turn to God for wisdom rather than the, the resources just around us, it's going to take a habit of sitting still and hearing from God's Word. So here's the challenge that I have for you this week. With the Daniel booklets, there are two readings for every day. One for your, if you have a, a time with God in the morning or in the evening, there's kind of a longer passage. But there's one for the middle of the day that's just a single verse. And this is what I want you to try for just one week, five days even. In the middle of the day, not after work or before, whatever, right in the middle of things when everything's happening, try to stop for two minutes and be completely silent, clear every thought out of your head except that God is with me, my Heavenly Father is with me for two minutes, and then just read that verse and reflect on it for a minute. One, to see if you can do it, because although three minutes seems like such a short amount of time, we are so used to being busied and hurried that it seems like forever. But two, to see how it would transform your day to in the middle of the day sit and think, I want to hear from the true source of wisdom from God. I think often people who even have a regular habit of meeting with God in the morning, it's almost like being in the Garden of Eden for a time and then walking out into the world, the cherubim with flashing swords, close it over and it's like, I'll see you tomorrow, God. You head out into the big bad world and it's, it's, I'll see you again in 24 hours' time. But just to see what would happen if as a church we were to sit to hear from God right in the thick of things, right in the middle of things, as an act of trust that he alone is the true source of wisdom. And to see if, like Daniel, it doesn't bless us and the people around us, that though we'd be exiles, we'd be ones who are there to do good in the city and to see real transformation. We want to be a church that trusts that God is wise. And even over this season, as there are many changes to come, and even as Cam mentioned, as we look to plan forward for the next few seasons, for the next few years, we don't want to rush or be reactionary or do something knee-jerk. We just want to step things out well so that we might be able to sit, to listen, to trust, and hear what God is saying, that he might be at work in us. It's been such an encouragement to hear what he's been doing in the Mork's life. And we want to see as a church God working through us powerfully as we stop to sit and listen and to trust that wisdom comes from God alone. Let's pray that that would be the case. Father, we praise you that though you are older than us, that you are more patient than us, that you are not hurried in bringing about your purposes, but you are not idle either. You move powerfully in our lives and in this world, but you move in your own timing. And so, Father, we pray that you'd give us a deep trust, a deep trust based in what you have done through Jesus at the cross, knowing that you are good to us and loving to us, and that we might trust that you alone provide wisdom, that we wouldn't turn to the world for wisdom, but to you, that we might hear from you and know how to live well 
as followers of you. Father, may you give us a peace. May you make us a non-anxious presence in the city. And may it all be for the glory of your name. Amen.